Hello, and welcome to Bird's Eye View, a podcast about the birds of the United States and the world in which they live. We take a bird's eye view as we explore a variety of topics related to birds, birding, and the natural world. This is Matthew Ratford, your host. I would love to hear from you. My email is radfordbirds, Radford, birds with an S, radfordbirds at gmail.com. I would love to hear where you are listening at, what your latest bird adventures have been, improvements I could do on the podcast, topics you'd like to hear, or if you'd like to be a guest on the podcast and have something you love or are expert in that we could talk about on the podcast. I'm sitting here in eastern Oklahoma again. Of course, I will be sitting here a lot of days since I live here and am gainfully employed here. Today it is hot, over 100 degrees already, and it's going to be over 100 degrees for five days, after which it'll cool off to 90 and we'll get some real precipitation. In eastern Oklahoma, in the summer, that's the trade-off. Lower humidity is going to be hot. If the temperature drops 10 or 15 degrees, the humidity goes through the roof. So you wonder sometimes, is it better to be high, high humidity at 90 or lower humidity at 100? It's kind of a trade-off. But I know one thing about this climate. In December, I will not be shoveling snow. If there is snow, it'll be gone in a day or two. So now that being said, I do miss Idaho. I do miss North Dakota, Montana. But man, those minus 30 temperatures and snow got really, really old a long time ago. The birding here in this heat is pretty slow as well. We have ruby-throated hummingbirds in the backyard. Mississippi kites are floating overhead. Of course, turkey vultures. A red-shouldered hawk. Tried to get some chickens yesterday, so they're definitely around. I think I'll put a bird, the bird feeders back up soon. The hummingbird feeders are up. I'll put up some other feeders up soon. Birds are done nesting for the most part, and they're just out feeding, trying to put on some winter fat, I believe. As I mentioned in my previous podcast, episode number one, this is just episode number two, we do have Evening, some nice evenings when the sun goes down. Chuck Wills, widows, whippoorwills, barred, great horned, and eastern screech owls. There's some really nice woods around here where we get some good capromulgids and owls. Well, in today's podcast, I want to talk about warblers, the warblers of the United States. Now, the warbler name is associated with quite a few different groups of birds. We're not going to talk about the Old World Warblers or the Australian Warblers. We're talking specifically about the warblers you can find in the United States, the New World Warblers or Wood Warblers, and actually more specifically the family Perulidae. So the family Perulidae are the Wood Warblers. That being said, there are members of the family Perulidae we have here that are not named warbler, common yellowthroat, two species of water thrushes, a couple species of perulas, an oven bird, for example. And there's an olive warbler that's actually not a member of the family Perulidae that's in Arizona. So we're going to talk about the family Perulidae. These are, in the United States, usually small, usually very colorful, passerine or perching birds, and again, restricted to the New World. 
they are arboreal for the most part. So they're tree loving. They spend time off the ground, up in the trees. Some of them spend their lives in the very tops of trees. But again, a few exceptions to that rule, the oven bird, the two water thrushes, a common yellow throat are more terrestrial. And those are the ones that tend to be a little drabber, at least on their backs, because they need to hide from predators since they're terrestrial. And there's roughly 50 of these birds, 50 species of New World warblers that you can find in the United States commonly. There's many more further south, but the United States Perula is about 50. And that varies, of course. There are some Mexican species that slip up into the U.S. There are, there's what I consider two species, the Myrtle Warbler and Audubon's Warbler, actually just one species, but I consider them two. But for the sake of nice round numbers, I consider that there's 50 and 50 that I could track down and see. Now, these are highly migratory birds. They are insect eating. Uh, most of them can't metabolize or take advantage of lipids or fats. An exception to that is the yellow rump warbler. So most of them are highly migratory. They need to get down south and find places to spend the winter to have insects. And then they can travel up to see us in the summer again when we have insects and they can nest and breed. This highly migratory nature allows us to run into some warblers in odd places sometimes. I just saw on Facebook the last couple of days, there's a prairie warbler in Idaho. Someone told me it's the last state of the lower 48 to get a prairie warbler, at least have it documented. So that's an odd kind of migratory anomaly there. <clears throat> Excuse me. We actually ran into a blue-winged warbler doing some weird migratory stuff in West Texas this year. As we birded Oklahoma, we got a, a migratory Swainson's warbler that was lost. We got bay-breasted and Blackburnian warblers here in Tulsa County that migrate through. They don't breed here. They're just migrating through. So everybody loves to get out during spring migration because you can see some really great warblers that aren't nesting, but they're just heading through your area, and they're fun to try to track down and find. Now, warblers are particularly close to my heart. Many people probably say that. When I was a kid growing up in Idaho, I would sit and look at my bird books and really fantasize about seeing these eastern warblers. I just could not believe how colorful they looked. Sometimes I wondered if they were real and if I'd ever get to see them. The chestnut-sided warbler, blue-winged warbler, golden-winged warbler, Blackburnian, bay-breasted, just all these amazing warblers I would see and just really crave and want to see them. And I didn't have the resources, of course, as a kid, but I'm happy now that I'm much older. I have seen, in my quest to see 50, I've seen 48. And there's two more specific ones I want to see to get that number to 50, and that is the red-faced warbler of the desert southwest and the hermit warbler in the Pacific northwest and west coast of the United States. So I kind of want to tell you today about that journey, my journey from having a few warblers on the Idaho farm to now having seen 48 of them and how I saw them, where I, where I saw those birds at, what, what life or what areas life took me that I could encounter those birds and ultimately see 48 of them. And I'm hoping by next spring that number will be at 50 and it actually should be. So as I mentioned before, my 
journey to see a bunch of warblers in North America, or at least 50 in the United States, started in Idaho. Had a few birds around the Idaho farm was about it. Yellow warbler, yellow rumped warbler, Wilson's warbler. Later, I was lucky to get down to college in Pocatello, Idaho, where I could explore some southern drier habitats, some riparian woods, and get McGillivray's warbler, Virginia's warbler. Went on a college field trip and got Lucy's warbler. Found this cute, I think the littlest, the smallest warbler of our warblers, I think, is a Lucy's. I know the Lucy's, along with the prothonotary, are the only ones that nest in tree cavities, those two. I saw Lucy's warbler down in the northern reaches of the Mojave Desert in southern Utah, Beaver Dam Wash. Now, moving to Oklahoma in 2012 is where I really started seeing some some eastern warblers that were just fun to see. Around town here in, in Tulsa, yellow-throated warbler, black and white warbler, northern perulas are everywhere. In 2017, Levi and I took a trip down to High Island, Texas. Uh, tropical birding tours, did some free tours, and we got some, again, just some great eastern eastern lifers. Cape May, Tennessee, Canada, Black Pole, Bay-breasted. And every one, as you know, if you've chased warblers, every one is like seeing a little unicorn that you've looked at pictures of, maybe dreamed about, you want to find. And then when you see one in real life, it's just, it's pretty amazing at times. We also took a trip from Oklahoma over to Western Arkansas in the Ozarks and got some of the wooded mountain type birds. So cerulean warbler, worm-eating warbler, hooded warbler. Cerulean we did not get good looks at. But we were able to go back this year to the same area, like five years later, and actually got some nice pictures of male cerulean warblers. Now, for me, going to Iowa in 2019 and 20 for employment was a real boon for eastern warblers. I just had some incredible days birding during spring migration and saw lifers, blue-winged warbler, golden-winged warbler, Morning, black-throated green, and even Connecticut, which I'll talk about in a few minutes. So my birding journey to see 50 perulids has been that. Idaho, to Utah, to Oklahoma, to Texas, to Arkansas, to Iowa, and then, of course, a few other states, which I'll, I'll talk about. I did want to tell a couple stories. So I have five kind of perulid stories I jotted down. As we take these little birding trips and these journeys to bolster our life lists or for whatever whatever reason we have to bird watch, the highlight for me and the real the real long the real long term upside I guess is the stories that we that we have, the people we run into, the fun we have, the relationships we form. I wanted so I want to talk about five stories. One's related to a tropical perula. One, a Connecticut warbler, one, Swainson's warbler, one, painted red start, and one, Palima warbler. During 2020, the winter of 2020, I spent time down on South Padre. And I went to the South Padre Birding Center quite often. And I was there one morning talking to two friends of mine that I met there. They worked there, Javi and Brittany. 
we were looking at the different birds that were around, kind of watching the, the water feature. And I told Javi jokingly, could you please just call down a tropical perula? I need to see a tropical perula. And he said, well, I would love to, but, and then he gave me the, you know, the, the probability and it was slim to none. He said, we get there every year in Cameron County. There's places to find them, but yeah, the odds you get one here are slim to none. Okay. And we kept talking. About five minutes later, another friend of mine, Sebastian, came to the the center, came around the corner. I gave him a hug. We turned around to look at Javi and Brittany, and a bird flitted down in a tree, and he looked up and said, Matt, that's a tropical perula. And it was a tropical perula, or as I like to call it, a tropical freaking perula. We had talked about calling one down, joked about it, and five minutes later, a tropical perula showed up. It was the most amazing thing. We all got pictures of us, of it, all four of us. We recorded it, great bird, and add that to my life list. When I was in Iowa, I encountered a Connecticut warbler. I worked in a job that required nice weather, so if it was raining, I couldn't work. I was in Mason City. And I went a lot to a, a Lime Creek WMA outside of Mason City. And I told myself, I could get a Connecticut warbler here. And I, I had seen every other warbler that came through there that I possibly could. So every time I couldn't work, every time it rained, I went to the same area, the same loop, looked in the same woods, and walked and walked and walked. And I probably, I figure I ultimately walked 50 miles, I must have, but finally about a 10 days into this and into migration, I look up, a bird flits up out of the trees, lands briefly. I saw a bold white eye ring, clearly a warbler, colored like a morning, but bigger, more thrush-like, more deliberate in its movement. It dips back down, and I knew it was a I knew it was a Connecticut warbler. Didn't get a picture though. And as soon as I saw it, people came around the corner, they were noisy, they finally left. I walked up the trail and it flushed again. It flew up into a tree. I got a picture. It was my lifer, Connecticut warbler. And in that part of Iowa, it was rare, a rare migrant. But I, I put in the time, I put in the miles, and I finally tracked one down. I, I could not believe it. Okay, a Swainson's warbler. My Swainson's warbler lifer was a little more subdued. There was a I think there's several botanical gardens in Atlanta. I can't remember which one I was at, actually. But I went to their botanical gardens when I was working in Alabama. And I heard across the river, I think it was the Ocene River, or Oconee River, O-C-O-N-E-E, Oconee River, the middle Oconee River. I heard Swainson's Warbler, plain as day. Got it recorded, but that Oconee River was... 50 yards wide, going fast, and this looked like chocolate milk. No way I'd be able to see that Swainson's Warbler. But I could hear it. But I wanted to see one. My lifer I wanted to see. But I got some advice from Nate Swick, who I messaged, the ABA Nate Swick. He messaged me and said, you know, when I encourage people to try to find Swainson's Warbler, I tell them to go to the habitat in the north part of the state. It was dominated by maple, rhododendron, mountain laurel. Find some isolated canyons, and you can find them and probably get a look at them. 
And as so happens, the next couple of weeks, I had to go work in Helen, Georgia. And I went to Smithgall Woods. And it was so fun just to hike back into the woods and find the right habitat. I found some canyons dominated by Mount Laurel, rhododendron, maple. And sure enough, the first ridge I come over, I listened down in this canyon and I get Swainson's Warbler. And I sat long enough to get a look at a Swainson's Warbler and I got a picture of the Swainson's Warbler. By the time I was done, I saw five or six, or I heard five or six breeding males on territory. It was just, it was fun. I loved it in particular because I found those myself by understanding habitat and understanding the, the nature of the birds. Another fun one, a, uh, a story that stands out is Painted Red Start. Levi and I went to Arizona, I think that same, yeah, it was that same winter, down to Arizona, late December 2020, pandemic, of course, so we were just staying away from people, but we went to the Patton Hummingbird Center. We went south and then back up west, close west, closer to Rio Rico and the Santa Cruz River. At that point, we were just looking for, I think, a rose-throated Bacard had been seen in the area and a Lawrence's Goldfinch. So we're trying to find some rarities that we saw had been seen in the area. Hiking up the Santa Cruz River, saw a little mixed flock of birds, saw Hammond's flycatcher, saw some good birds. And I was delighted because Levi saw it, identified it first. A bird flitting around that probably should not have been there in the winter, but sure enough, it was a painted red start. I remember him saying, that's a red start. That's a painted red start. And he got to look at it, he identified it, and then showed the old man the bird. So it was fun because it was a surprise. I thought we'd have to wait till spring to get a painted red start in Arizona, but we got it in the winter. And then later we found another one in Madeira Canyon. A couple days later, we stayed at Santa Rita Lodge in Madeira Canyon, hiking up in a canyon, and found three birds hanging out together. It was really odd. There was a Mexican jay, a verdun, and another painted red start just chilling together. They were associating with each other up in these, this canyon, doing their thing, hanging out like good friends. I don't know if they were all outcasts, and so they had formed a gang of some sort. But again, second red start of that trip. It was great. Another story that leaps out at me, of course, is uh, that I want to share is a Kalima warbler. And I'm going to talk more about this and get some other people's perspective. The two people, Jim Kettlecamp and Levi Radford, that were able to see them with me. But the Kalima warbler was quite a story because we failed at it. Went to Chisos Basin, hiked up in the hills, and did not get Kalima Warbler. And someone said later on the podcast, well, you, you surely you got Kalima, right? I mean, everyone gets Kalima when they go up there. <laughs> and, and we did not. We failed at it. It was a miserable night, sleeping in tents, getting beaten by storms. Um, we were tired and grumpy. We did not sleep the night before. Levi had kind of a sick stomach, we're not feeling well. And in retrospect, we hiked about half a mile short. We did not get far enough. The cicadas were loud. It was hot. It was early June. We were there a month late. It was just tough circumstances. But it was a story of redemption. We went back, and we went back this year and got, I think, five Kalima warblers. We did it the right way. And I'm actually going to, we'll share more of that story when I get on a podcast with Jim and Levi about Kalima Warbler. 
Well, I have shared a smattering of commentary and stories and a little bit of information on our North American or United States warblers, and I will certainly share more. There are three warblers in particular that are fun to talk about because they're geographically isolated. They are three birds that people have to make an effort just to go get into their habitat. And, of course, they're interesting to me because I've seen all three of them. They are the Kirtland's warbler, the golden-cheeked warbler, and the Kalima warbler. Uh, Kirtland warblers breed only in young jack pine forests in Michigan and adjacent parts of Wisconsin and up into Ontario, I believe it is. The golden-cheeked warbler, they breed only in the central Texas hill country in juniper oak woodlands. They can be found right in the city as long as they have that juniper oak woodland habitat. And the Kalima warbler, they breed only in the Chisos Mountains of West Texas in the United States. They do also breed in the Sierra Madres of northeastern Mexico. So those three birds are, are interesting. The Kirtlands and the Golden-Cheeked, I actually saw right from the parked vehicle. They weren't that hard to find. Kalima took some effort, as I mentioned, because... We were up there like a bunch of lurches, uh, not making the most of our first trip. But the second trip, we found them relatively easily, but it was after a four and a half mile hike. So they're not easy to get to. Once you get there, you can find them. But I am going to have a good friend of mine, Jim Kittlecamp, on a, a podcast soon. And we're going to talk about these three warbler species. Uh, Jim is the one person that actually I've seen all three of these with. We got Lifer Kirtlands together and Kalima together, and then we saw Golden Cheeks together this year. Well, I hope this has been a, a fun little a chat about warblers. As I said before, no matter where you are, you have warblers. So I would be curious if you'd email me, radfordbirds at gmail.com, what your warbler thoughts are, your favorite warbler, warblers you have in your state, what state you are from. And also, more broadly, let me know what topics you'd like to hear on a podcast. Uh, the first few podcasts, I'm going to do this, just share some of my thoughts and commentary and my birding story. But then I have some great guests lined up in August and September. If you'd like to be a guest on the podcast, email me that too, and we'd love to chat. Get out there and see some warblers. Thank you for listening to Bird's Eye View. We'll talk to you again soon.